How many of you remember an event that took place in the fall of 2003? It happened in the northeastern United States and the eastern part of Canada. It was called the Great Power Shutdown. Anybody remember that? Anybody experience that? There were some people in the first service who actually were there when it happened and they had some things to say about what, uh, what their experiences were. But what started as a computer glitch in a power station in Ohio rapidly spread uh, the, the glitch and the mistakes went from one system to another system to another system so that the whole northeastern power grid was shut down from a minimum of five hours to sometimes two days more than 45 million people were affected by a lack of electrical power no subway system street lights air conditioning computers tvs they just all stopped working so did elevators now, I don't know about you, but I can live without streetlights for five hours. I can live without my computer for maybe a day, maybe, maybe not. But the thing that I couldn't deal with was be trapped in an elevator for five hours. No light, complete darkness, hanging from a thread. That's actually what actually happened to a man in New York City that day. He was trapped in the Empire State Building between the 52nd and 53rd floor and he was there for over five hours, 525 feet in the air, hanging by a single cable. To put that into perspective, uh, if you know what Chase Field is like down, downtown, you put Chase Field, stack it up twice, is 525 feet. University of Phoenix football stadium, stack it up three times, 525 feet. Can you imagine dangling from the top of that by a cable in the dark, locked in a box for five hours? Would that get to you? It would get to me. Well, CNN interviewed the man uh, that has happened to after the rescue, and they asked him, what was it like to be trapped in there for five hours? And the man said this. He said, I have never been so terrified or alone in my life. Those five hours were a living hell. I was trying to get the doors open, and I was pulling on it until my fingernails were bloody. I was screaming until I had no voice left, but nobody could hear me. I couldn't see anything. I thought for sure I was going to die. But then after five hours, I heard a sound on the top of the elevator, and a detective rappelled down from the floor above and opened the escape hatch, and they lowered a rescue harness in and pulled this man out. The man said, all I wanted was that door to be opened. Remember that, be opened. The man said when he got out of the, the when he finally re reached the, the next level, the 57th floor, he said, I looked at my watch and it was 9.15 p.m. He said, I'll never forget that time as long as I live. You see, I was dead in that elevator shaft, but then I was alive again. He said, the only thing that freed me was when that door was opened up. There was another man, similar to the guy in New York City, who lived over 2,000 years ago. You heard his story a little bit ago. Let me repeat it in another version. Jesus was in the area of the Ten Cities, which was the Gentile area of Palestine. And this happened. Some people brought a man that could neither hear nor speak and asked Jesus to lay a healing hand on him. He took the man off by himself, put his fingers in the man's ears, and some spit on the man's tongue. 
And then Jesus looked up in prayer, groaned mightily, and commanded, Ephatha, be opened. And it happened. The man's hearing was clear, his speech was plain, just like that. Put yourself in the shoes of the man who is deaf and can hardly speak. We know he was a Gentile, but we don't know very much about him. We could, the fact that he could speak a little bit means that he was probably able to hear when he was a small child, but then he became deaf at an early age. Imagine yourself in that situation in that text. We are told that a man was isolated by his deafness and by his inability to speak. Can you imagine what that would be like? He could see what was happening, but he didn't know how to react because he couldn't put it into context, because he didn't know what the people were saying. He couldn't hear the tones in their voice. All he could see were their actions. And suddenly this man is just hanging around, doing what he normally does, when suddenly a crowd of people grabbed him and seized him and began pushing and pulling him down the street. He doesn't know what's happening. He's panicking. He's probably mumbling, trying to figure out what's happening, but the people either can't hear him or don't pay attention to him. And suddenly this man is dragged before Jesus, and the people stand him up before Jesus, and they say, here, heal him. And the guy doesn't have any clue as to what's going on. What do you expect? Fear? Consternation? Panic? These are the things that would pop into mind. So we were told that Jesus took this man and, and separated him from the crowd, took him off by himself privately and separated him from the crowd and gently began to talk to the man. First of all, he indicated in a kind of sign language that he understood the man's problems. He took his fingers and put them into the man's ears, to, or his own ears, to indicate that he knew the man was deaf. And he spit on his finger and put it on the man's tongue to indicate that he knew that the man couldn't speak clearly. But as Jesus is doing this, he's, he's holding on to the man or maybe rubbing his shoulder or doing something, but he's settling the man down. And Jesus then looks up to heaven and begins to pray. And the man probably, certainly, is feeling more and more comfortable. He, he doesn't know what's happening, but he knows that this man is caring about him. Jesus responds to the man in this very difficult situation with kindness and compassion. Again, imagine you're the man. You're in this situation. There's this person that, they, that he doesn't even know who Jesus is or what Jesus is, and he's holding him, and suddenly Jesus looks up to heaven and, Ephatha, be open! And the man hears it. Whoa! What's happening? And he begins to talk plainly so that other people could understand him. Can you imagine the person's feelings? He was deaf, he couldn't hear, but now he can. He was cut off from, his, from the people around him because he couldn't communicate, but now he can speak plainly. How would you perceive Jesus in that situation? Whether the man knew him by reputation or not, he must surely have recognized that this man, Jesus, in front of him was something special that something about the kingdom of God, something about the kingdom of heaven was breaking into his life. And not only this man, but the whole crowd, because we are told in the reading that uh, this idea began to stir throughout the crowd. This Jesus has done everything well. He makes the deaf to hear. 
and he makes the mute speak. Whether they knew it or not, they were quoting the words from the prophet Isaiah from some 700 years before. Isaiah said, you will know that the Messiah, the promised one of God, has come into your world because the deaf will hear and the mute will speak and the blind will see and the brokenhearted will be comforted and the prisoners will be free and the captive will be made whole. Those were all things Jesus was doing. The sign pointing to the fact that he was the Messiah. This miracle is a sign that Jesus is the promised one of God, the one that God had, sent, had promised to send. But let, let's take a step back for a moment and focus on the love and compassion that Jesus demonstrated to this bewildered and frightened man, that he's really preparing this man to receive the kingdom of heaven. First of all, separating the man from the crowd was an act of compassion in itself. So Jesus saw that this man was pressed upon and pushed and torn in various directions. He was afraid. But we see that Jesus had deep respect for the man's situation, that he had care and compassion for people. The first need was to separate him from the fear that was generated by the crowd that he couldn't understand. But once he was at ease, Jesus could, could show to this man the love of God. Above all else, Jesus wants to show himself to the man through what he does. A miracle is always pointing to something. Certainly, it's pointing to God's power. There is power inherent in a miracle that, that God gave, that God has this power since he created the world to suspend the rules of the world, to suspend the rules of nature and make things happen that ordinarily wouldn't happen. But this power of God is always a side issue in the miracles of Jesus. Jesus doesn't do these miracles to call attention to himself. Remember in the reading, he told the people, don't tell people about my miracles. Tell them instead that you have seen God. Because the, the miracles are really a kind of sign language for God, a pointing beyond the present world, beyond the present situation, a pointing towards something yet to come, something that is not yet fully realized. The miracle is a sign that the kingdom of God is breaking into our world. That's why Jesus refused to do miracles upon demand. You know, after he fed the, the 5,000, the people wanted to, to make him the bread king. He said, hey, why don't you do this two or three times a day? Then we don't have to work and we can just have bread. Show us your power. The miracles weren't to show the power they were to show the love of God. The miracle is to speak of God's grace and God's mercy. It's a message, a sign to a broken world that God is at work reassembling the pieces, putting it together, and that they will come when he will restore all things. Paul writes about that in a letter to the Roman Christians. Paul says, we know that the whole creation is groaning until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait for the adoption of sons, as we await for the redemption of our bodies. What is presently should not be. This is not the broken world we live in is not what God intended. But the miracles of God are a signpost 
to show what ought to be, what could be, what will be for anyone who follows the king. It's as if we are stretching to look over a wall. We can see the light. We can see the, the light of the glory of God on the other side of the wall, but we, we can't look over and see what's causing it. But it's a sign that says there's something on the other side of the wall where God is at work and it's waiting for us. The miracles of Jesus are his sign language to signal the coming of his kingdom. Is that much different from the situation in which we find ourselves today? We feel the, the pressures and uncertainties and fears of life. We feel like we are being pushed and pulled and torn in ways that aren't to our liking. We know that we are not what we would like to be, that we often fall short of who we should be. We recognize that the existence we have is not permanent. Few of us are more than a breath away from death, a few paychecks away from poverty, one street down the road from an accident that could change our lives forever. We recognize that life is hard. There's a host of events and possibilities and fears that drag us and pull us like the deaf man until we find ourselves before God reflecting on his mercy, saying, I, don't, I can't do this on my own. I need you, Lord. You know, it's in, those, in that situation that we often find comfort in passages where God says, you know, I will be with you always and I will, I will take care of you. And, and we hear those and we know those, but maybe that's often not enough. Sometimes we take it too easily. Yeah, I'm in trouble. Yeah, God can help me. Okay, it's all going to be better. And we never reflect on what's going on. When a person is confronted with the living God himself, the first response is hardly comfort. When you have a chance, read the sixth chapter of the prophet Isaiah. It's a beautiful story that tells, that tells is the account of how the prophet Isaiah was called by God to be in ministry as a, as a prophet. And Isaiah's ministry extended for at least 60 years. So he was called to be a, a prophet for 60 years. But in chapter 6, we hear the story of how God called him. Isaiah said he was resting, and the Lord caught him up in spirit and took him into the very throne room of God in heaven. And this is what happened. He said, I saw, the, Isaiah writes, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With, with two he covered his face, and with two they covered their feet, and with, with two they flew. And they called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of the one who was singing. And the house was filled with smoke. Wow. Can you imagine? What would you do? Take out your phone, snap a picture, and say, Boy, I got to put this on my Facebook page. Wow, I got to post this to Instagram. Nobody's going to believe this. Wow. Hey, God, would you sign this, please? Pretty cool. Not me, not Isaiah. Here's what Isaiah said Woe is me. I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
that's not the end of the story. Isaiah, aware of his sinfulness, stands in terror before a holy God. And the Lord responds, I have touched your mouth. I have touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Go and share my word. God took the broken pieces of Isaiah and put them back together. And as we hear beautifully in the story of Isaiah, same happens to us. We come before God in confession as we did earlier and we show him all the broken pieces and he puts them together. It's a miracle, a miracle of healing and wholeness and forgiveness, a miracle that alerts us that God's kingdom has come into our lives by his grace. Not by anything we deserve, not by anything we owe, not because of who we are, not because of how important we think we are, but because of the fact that he loves us. So he comes to us when we repent and he speaks to us in forgiveness and he gives, deals with us in respect and concern because he realizes without him we are helpless. He recognizes our brokenness, our deafness, our inability to speak, and he says, I will make you whole. I will make you new again. And we are received by God's grace just as this man was. The one who hates sin becomes the chief sinner for us. The judge becomes the judge on our behalf. The one who is sinless takes our sin upon himself. He speaks words to our heart. He says, be opened. Here, receive what I have for you. Good news, forgiveness. A deaf man is made to hear while his speech impediment is removed. A sign of the coming kingdom of God. But we know that the kingdom of God is already among us. The kingdom of God comes to us through his means of grace, through baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptismal water is poured as a sign and symbol through which God opens the doors of the kingdom for us with his power. In your baptism, God came to you in the person of his spirit. And he says, I am baptizing you into my son, into his death into his resurrection. In your baptism, I am giving you my spirit and I am giving you every spiritual gift you need for your entire life. Use it every day as a reminder and a renewal of what I have done for you. The kingdom of God comes to us and will come to us in a few minutes in the Lord's Supper. There we receive bread and wine as a visual image through which Christ's body and blood shed for the remission of our sins are offered as a source of kingdom power in our lives. Here is my body that was broken to pay for your sins. Eat it. Receive me. Here is my blood shed for your sins. Receive it as a sign of the power of forgiveness at work in you. The sacraments alive in our lives telling us that the kingdom of God is at hand. A kingdom in our lives that must be spoken of, proclaimed, signed, made visible in any possible way as we get ready to participate in the fuller joy yet to come. 
Is not your life in Christ a miracle? Isn't it a sign of that which is yet to come, which you long for, which you hope for, which you count on, which you are sure of? Our words tell something of that miracle, but also our lives reflect that miracle. For the words we speak, the things we do, the way we act are all signs to others of what God has already done in us. It's his way of opening our mouths that we can share what it is that we have seen and heard. We come to those lost in sin that we know of, and our words of hope and healing are to them, be opened. Receive the gift that God has for you. Rejoice in that joy. You see, we are sons and daughters of God, and we've been privileged to live lives that in thought, word, and deed are signs that the kingdom of God is at hand, that we have seen the king. May all of our days be filled with that joyful shout, be opened, the king is at hand. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, on a day long ago, you came to a man who was lost and confused and frightened and afraid, and you changed his life. You came into his life and not only made him hear and speak, but you said, you are my son, welcome to my kingdom. You came to each of us in the waters of our baptism and you said, you are mine, I have made you new. I've given you the gifts that you need to live your life, that you might participate with great joy in all that I will accomplish. So Lord, we pray that you would help us hear the echo of that be opened, that we might share that story, that we might tell that good news, but that by the words we say and the actions we participate in might be signs of good news, of hope, and of healing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.